spoken lately. I haven't thought about flying for a long time. I haven't dreamed of that moment when I was alone above the clouds for a long time. I haven't dreamed of waking up in a room surrounded in blue and green grass more years than I could dream of memory. I haven't walked back into the past or scratched on the doors of my origins, where it all came from, since I held up that cape for the last time. Return to Kent Town 10th year anniversary edition is a revised version of Ambien's first poetry book. The book can be purchased from Amazon and it contains numerous additional material. Spoken Hi, it's Andien from Spoken Label. Thank you today for streaming or downloading another episode of Spoken Label. Spoken Label was originally set up on beginning of the 2016 and as of speaking has currently nearly 300 sessions. The full archive is available on Spoken Label full stop bandcamp.com although it is available for free for stream and download if you wish i am always grateful for any sort of kind of donation to enable to me to keep the running costs of this podcast going and enjoy take care bye-bye spoken label hi guys and the end spoken label back in the house on a warm saturday evening we're over to america again today and i've got a lovely lady with me today now she's going to contact me fairly recently an email and I really like the sound of her book, but we'll come on to that in a minute because what I like about Spoken Label is when you research the, the author, sometimes you find out things about them you didn't realise. And this lady in question has done two books about Virginia Woolf as well, and I want to talk to her about that as well. So we've got Lisa, and she's going to kill me for this now, Sim, L. Budowski Williams, or Lisa to me. <laughs> have I got that right, Lisa, or have I completely out? <laughs> No, no, very close. Elbor Detsky Williams. Oh, no one is. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I'm not going to call you L because I'll, I'll forget after Lisa, 10 minutes. Lisa. Lisa. Okay, Lisa. Now, Lisa, for people that obviously don't know you, do you want to tell people obviously where you're from and what started you off with all your creativity? And we'll start okay, from there. Great. Okay, great. Just so wonderful to be here. I am from New York. I grew up in Queens, New York. So, and I was just telling Andy that I've lived in New York my whole life. I went to college in Massachusetts and I uh, spent time studying in Moscow um, as a student and probably lived a year in Boston. But otherwise, I've always lived in New York City and New York City is a big inspiration for me. I have to say, um, I really love the city as I love London. I think if you love New York, you love London. They're sister cities as far as I'm concerned. Um, and uh, I, I always wanted to write. So I, I was probably one of these kind of uh, just love to read. And actually, um, I loved Russian literature so much, uh, even like just read a lot of it in my teen years. And stayed, all those books stayed with me my whole life. Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, Chekhov. And of course, I read Mrs. Dalloway for the first time when I was 16 and I didn't understand any of it, but I loved it. <laughs> yeah. I think uh, I, I read at 18. I would have struggled with that at 16 as yeah. well. So. I, I just loved it though. It didn't matter to me. And so I always really always wanted to write. And um, actually uh, I took a, a journey. I was a, a, 
I went to Moscow in 1980 as a student, and it was an unbelievable experience to be in in Moscow during the Cold War. Um, and I met, you know, many of the grandchildren of the Bolsheviks, um, whose you know grand grandparents were Bolshevik leaders and believed in in all of those incredible ideals of the revolution. And many of them were murdered by Stalin um, during the late 30s or were exiled. And they're, they're, I had an unusual experience to meet, to meet them while I was there. I'll talk about that later. But they really inspired me to write. And, and when I graduated from college, I started to write down their experiences. Um, I, it took me a long time to find the right form. So in the meantime, I did write an academic, I went on to graduate school and I did write an academic book on Virginia Woolf and Toni Morrison, and then a memoir, Letters to Virginia Woolf and some poems. And just recently I came out with Forget Russia. So the writing's been with me my whole life. Um, but I also am a professor at Ramapo College of New Jersey. And um, it's it's a wonderful college and I love teaching and I love my students and they inspire me too. Brilliant. Now I want to obviously talk about obviously then about what each of your books and obviously like, with your writing you've gone through like I could say different phases aren't you really if you look at it like where you've done two academic books poetry and now you're on to your current novel so I want to ask you first of all then um, where did your love of Virginia Woolf and Toni Morrison come from? Okay great wonderful. Um, so I, I've always loved Virginia Woolf and, um, my love for Virginia Woolf has taken me to England, um, several times to go to the Virginia Woolf conference, uh, to Sussex, to see her home, um, to Bloomsbury, <laughs> to walk around. Oh, wow. I mean, I really think when I first read Mrs. Dalloway, even though I didn't really understand it, it the language or some, it spoke to me in some way. I didn't understand why. And I mean, Virginia Woolf is such, was such a pioneer. And I think, you know, as I went to college and then in graduate school, um, she just spoke so deeply of, you know, what it meant to be a pioneer and to be an outsider and just to, go so deep into the interior lives of being a woman and her, her own struggles. Um, and then of course, Toni Morrison is, well, it was a tremendous loss when she died, but she is like one of our greatest American writers. She's so yeah. towering. Yeah. Beloved. 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 Or is that you? Beloved is University. so That was a difficult book to read, but I'm yeah. glad I read it. It was a proper challenge, that's for sure. And, you know, in at the end of A Room of One's Own, Virginia Woolf says, you know, she invites, she says to women, you know, please, like, even if you write in obscurity and poverty, you have to write what you, what you believe and what you know is to be true, even if it goes against the grain of, like, what everyone else is writing. And in 100 years, someone will do it better. And I almost feel like, you know, it's, it's not quite a hundred years that Toni Morrison starts writing, but as though she's anticipating Toni Morrison. I think she would have just loved Toni Morrison. And it, it, it's, um, I, I did my dissertation on Toni Morrison and Virginia Woolf, and then I was able to public, you know, revise it and publish it into the Addis 
the artist as outsider in the novels of Toni Morrison and Virginia Woolf. And each of them in their own way. Um, first of all, Toni Morrison did her master's thesis on Mrs. Dalloway and, uh, and on Faulkner. Um, so that's the connection, the starting point. And I think both of them were such pioneers in their own respective ways. And I feel that Wolf would have so welcomed. I mean, she would have been so excited about Morrison. I mean, Morrison is just so courageous and documenting, you know, life and life in America, um, life for Black Americans in in America, um, and also asking her readers to just look inside themselves to how they've internalized hierarchy and racism. And Wolf is also asking her readers to look inside themselves. And um, she's asking her readers to be pacifists and to, to refuse to participate in war. And she's looking at, you know, Lily Briscoe, you know, what does it take? What identity does someone need to be an artist? Um, you know, what kind of self-identity does one need? And she just, you know, for me, I could talk about for so long. Um, Professions for Women was a, I teach, well, I, I actually teach a seminar on Wolf and Morrison. And oh, for wow. me, Professions for Women, which the students love. And for me, Professions for Women, when, she, you know, when she says that she had to murder off that angel in the house in order to write, it's so profound. And it was just eye-opening for me when I read it because um, I felt like, wow, it's not just Wolf, that self-censorship. Like if she can do it, when I, all those negative feelings that come to my mind when I write, I just have to murder them off in order to, and, and just proceed. And that was really profound. Understandable. Now it obviously showed, obviously with that first book you've done, you still had more you wanted to write about Virginia Woolf. Because people obviously check, you bought a second book out of Virginia Woolf, didn't you? Five years later. Well, Yes, letters, letters to, to yeah, letters yes. to Wolf. Yes, sorry, yes. <laughs> yes, yeah, sorry to, um, and that is actually like a memoir. It's not. It's it's a, it's a memoir, and or a book of creative nonfiction, and it's the letters. And I really wanted to was thinking about like what Wolf has meant to me. So I actually write her letters, and it was right after nine eleven in New York, and I was thinking about Septimus. And I was thinking about Wolf as a pacifist. And I was thinking about how she helped me view my own childhood. And actually the book is a lot about um, what it's like to have miscarriages because, and which Wolf did not have children. So you think why letters to Virginia Wolf and what it's like to go through fertility treatments actually. And all aspects of a woman's experience that's not written about enough. And Wolf gave me the courage to look at these experiences and say, this needs to be documented. Wolf is so courageous how she documents women's lives. And she's, she gave me the courage. And also, you know, thinking deeply about Septimus and what war did and walking around New York after 9-11. But Septimus is just one of, and Mrs. Dalloway is one of the greatest anti-war novels ever, ever written. So it, it it reflects back on, you know, what childhood meant to Wolf in the past, what the past means to me and my own, you know, experience as a woman that I felt like 
um, Wolf really gave me the courage to explore and to try and document. Yeah, no, she's that's all right, straight away. But I was thinking the two books to me was a, To the Lighthouse and the favourite one, and I forgot, I just double-checked the name before, was The Waves, which is the most experimental book. God, the Waves is just absolute... It's the, the, it's done the sum up about that book. It's just absolutely groundbreaking, marvellous writer, really, really well ahead of her time. And you can see with the mental health problems she had with that book, certainly so. Now... Obviously, after that, because obviously we're here to, to, to talk about your book, Forget Russia. I want to talk about your poetry before we get to that. I know you've done three poetry collections as well, just to show your versatility as a writer. So um, I'm guessing as well, then, you've always been writing poetry since you're much younger then, haven't you, as well? Or did that come a bit later in life? I did write poetry when I was younger, and I you know, published some of it in the college literary magazines and... Um, in a collection of poems about grandmothers. Um, and then, you know, I, I think I've always, I began to get more serious about writing poetry. I actually started teaching poetry and teaching a, like a survey of poetry at my school. And I got so inspired by teaching it that I started writing it and studying it more and taking more workshops and um, just working. It, it was just sort of a, all those poetry chapbooks the three poetry chapbooks were labors of love and yeah I, I do poems in many of the chapters of forget russia start with a poem so yeah yeah i noticed i noticed that from reading what i read the novel as well i saw that and i thought i, I was when i researched it and i thought myself when i'm reading that novel i thought surely this, this lady's obviously a published poet as well so let me ask you about that then. We're digressing. I like I like wandering all over the point with DBTs. Then, what made you with then want to start off most or all your chapters to forget Russia with a little bit of a poem? Then was that was that an accident or was it a plan all along? That? No, no. I I really like the idea of mixing you know genres, and I wanted to get at that experience. Forget Russia tells story of three generations of Russian Jews journeying back and forth from Russia to America, in a sense, searching for a home. And it starts off, you know, particularly with young Anna, who's on her way to the Soviet Union and is, is about to have a series of adventures that change her life and help her understand her own family history. And I felt like to try and get at the profundity of this sense of journey and sometimes just from different angles and from also a sense that the poem could echo what would come after and what would come after would also echo in the poem. So the two genres would sort of echo one another. Yeah. Works really well, it does, because I've seen a lot before now, novelists will often put quotes on top of the chapter or the collects chapter of the poem. It doesn't always work. You've got, I mean, you've got to be a very, very skilled writer to do that. So you've done it really well. You did it. You didn't distract at all. So it's worth. It's very, very well done. That indeed. So, okay. Now, tell us about the character of Anna then. And also, obviously, people want to know where did Forget Russia come from as a book then? Because because okay, I've got think. questions about that, but we'll do the, the origins. Yeah, first I can't wait. Um, these are great questions. The Forget Russia is based on my own family history. And um, my great-grandmother, Zlata, um, she lived in the Ukraine. Um, and 
I did a lot of research for Forget Russia and actually the civil war after the Russian Revolution from 1918 to 1921 was a very unstable time in the Ukraine. Um, and the Bolsheviks lost control of the Ukraine for periods of time. And there were all these factions, the White Army, the Ukrainian nationalists, a lot of other factions trying to gain control of the Ukraine. And so it made it incredibly unstable. And while they were all fighting with each other to get control of the Ukraine united against the Bolsheviks, they all hated the Jews. It was a very bad time to be Jewish in the Ukraine. So what happened was by 1921, when the Bolsheviks got control back in of the Ukraine, the defeated armies, the white, the Ukrainian nationalists, the Cossacks, they they had to leave. They, they were defeated, but they went into these small Jewish shtetls, these villages, and they just massacred the Jews, um, you know, in, in what's called pogroms. And my great grandmother, Zlata, just history, just she's just in the wrong place at the wrong time. And she must have lost her life at that at that time. And she was raped and she was murdered. And then she was dumped in the river. And it's it's a hate crime, obviously. We have so many hate crimes going on all around the world right now. And I really wanted my book to make a stance against all hate crimes, but exploring it in my own family history and how something like that permeates the generations, particularly of women trying to work through that kind of inherited trauma. So my um, grandmother, Sarah, she was probably around 14 when she lost her mother and her father had already deserted her mother and her and gone to America promising to bring them, but instead sending a letter of divorce. So she found her uncle, took her in and she, her, her uncle looks for her father, finds him and Sarah crosses the ocean at age 16 to live with her father who she discovers is remarried with two children and a stepmother who doesn't want her. So it's this idea of journey and everyone is taking these multiple journeys. Believe it or not, you know, within 10 years, Sarah's back in the Soviet Union. She's married a man much, young, much older than her you know, based on my grandfather, again, this is, you know, based a lot on family history. Um, he, he also had a hate crime in his family, but he wasn't, his father was murdered in Russia before he came to America um, and robbed. He, they owned a saloon, but, but my grandfather was not scarred by this the way my grandmother was. So the book also asks, why do people respond so differently to trauma? He radicalized here. He wanted, it was the depression, 1931. He wanted so much to go back to the Soviet Union and build this idealistic revolution. My grandmother was suffered from depression. He brings the whole family back, borrows, you know, sells everything. My mother's five, my aunt is three, and he takes them back to Leningrad in 1931. Um, and it's, it's, life is pretty hard in Leningrad. Um, and I think that's the most unusual part of my tale. I don't think um, too much has been written about um, Jews who've returned, but also in 1931, probably most people don't know, 10,000 Americans went to the Soviet Union because things were so bad in America. 
Many black Americans went to the Soviet Union to escape American racism. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. So yeah. that's what I did. And it, the thing is, and Ford Motor Company had even a plant there. And some wow. people came, they, rather than work for Ford in Detroit, they were being going to be paid more in the Soviet Union. So they came. 19, if they got out before 1936, 1937, they were okay. But if they were there during the purges, of, you know, the height of 1936, 1938, these famous, you know, Stalin just like, just reversed so much of the revolution, imprisoned people, anyone, you know, the, the early in the 30s, all these people were very welcomed. It was, it could be kind of exciting if you were young, particularly, because um, you don't mind so much harsh living conditions or hard living conditions, you're young. Um, could be exciting. There was even a baseball team. But if you didn't get out, um, it would be very dangerous. Um, and there were many Americans stuck there. There were many British people stuck there who came to build that revolution. I read, I read an account of one couple um, from, from England. And, um, but they, they did come back after um, less than a year. They would have lost their US citizenship if they didn't return. So that's a whole story. And then in 1980, I go back as a young student so Anna is based a lot on my own experiences. So who's Anna? You know, it's, the book starts off with her. She's, you know, she's very young. She's never even been out of the country. Her wow. mother, she's crazy for going to uh, the Soviet Union. She said, you know, her mother tells her that your problem is you have a Russian soul. And, and I still remember what life was like there when I was five. And her grandmother tells her, you know, good luck, you'll need it. Her, her legs are practically shaking on the plane going over there. And yet, you know, when she gets there, she feels as, in some odd way as though she's been in that country before. And she meets these incredible, incredible Soviet Jews and other um, Soviet citizens who, in a sense, change her life. And um, it's based very much on my own experiences in 1980, um, the people I met definitely changed the, the course of my life and I never forgot them. Yeah, you can tell that straight away because um, what's not as obvious when you read this book, obviously, because I did some research you knew before and I came across an article online that you wrote about I'm just trying, on mother, wordmothers.com. And I want to talk about this because this is quite interesting because it insinuates that this book has literally took you a long, long time to write because... Yeah. I like the comparison when you came up with Walt Whitman, when you talked about his poem, his, I think it's a poem, Leaves of Grass, which I didn't read at uni. And that one was like, he, he just kept writing that pretty well throughout his life. And I take it was this pretty well, this book's been something similar for you, hasn't it? I'm guessing. Absolutely. And I have to say, I mean, Walt Whitman is one of my, you know, favorite, favorite poets. Um, and it's so moving to me. He, published Leaves of Grass in 1855 and he self-published it. It's now, I mean, he never made any money on it. Um, those original copies are in museums now. And he was always tinkering with it. He was always writing it, you know, and it's such a beautifully positive. I feel like Walt Whitman was like enlightened. <laughs> you know, he really understood the relationship between the self and the cosmos, not intellectually, but like he got it. And I was really inspired by that because I started this book so long ago. It first started off more as a memoir. I, you know, I'm really happy that when I got back from the Soviet Union so many years ago, I wrote immediately all my experiences down because it would have been really hard for me to remember it. And then I, you know, I, 
I worked on it and it, I just didn't feel satisfied with it. So I put it aside. I went to graduate school. I did the academic book on Wolf and Morrison. And I, I wrote letters to Virginia Woolf. But then I would come back to it periodically and then put it back down. And then I, you know, I did the poetry. But then I decided about 15 years ago, I just have to, you know, finish this book. And I got, you know, really serious about it. And I wrote it a million different ways. I did tons of research and I, I wrote it, you know, 40 times or something. I was always working on it, working on it, working on it. Wow. And yet I do. And the research really helped, but it did, you know, eventually come together. And I'm really happy with how it came together because, and I, I switched to a fictional form because it is three generations. And I think one of the hard things was to bring all of their stories together. I feel the book has this kind of epic historical sweep. And it also has a love story. I feel like if you're going to write about Russia, you have to have a love story. <laughs> and, oh, yeah, completely. The more yeah. miserable, the more miserable, the better usually works. And that yeah. sort of thing, yeah. No, that's the fiction that's happened, not so about Russia. It always, if you give a dramatic feel, yeah, definitely. But that one, so obviously, we've been doing so many drafts of the book. Um, did you find over? Did you find the original draft to do is completely different way from where the book actually ended up turning into? Well, I feel that um, those original drafts, in terms of the 1980, because the original drafts were really mainly about 1980. Um, most of those pages stayed, but they were just in a very different form. You know, it took me a long time to figure out the right structure. Yeah. I think the book became more and more ambitious in, again, it traces Anna's journey to the Soviet Union, but it also traces Sarah's journey to the United States. And in a sense, by putting those two characters together, Anna is in a, is in a sense journeying through Sarah's life. And I wanted to echo those two. So it's, and it became a lot about the idea of journey because then it traces Sarah's journey back to the Soviet Union and then back to the United States, which is, you know, it's, it's a lot of back and forth. Um, but journey is always related to self-transformation. And I really needed a fictional form to, um, to get at that. I felt like I also needed time. I, I realize now that I feel like this novel needed to just sit with me and I needed to, I needed some time to pass, you know, as I feel one of the most profound words Wolf has come up with is the, the second part of to the lighthouse time passes. Um, and time needed to pass for me to also understand these experiences more and through the writing and rewriting, I felt like it, and the struggle with it. Um, I was like wrestling with it for many years. Um, I felt like that process now looking back on it helped me also understand you know, what would the significance of, of these experiences and these lives. 
yeah, no, straight. I get it straight away with that. I've had, I've got two thirds away from my first novel at the moment, and that's took me fifteen years to write. I'll get there with it, but I know what you mean. But I know talking to me now. I want to ask you as well because obviously a couple of bits and pieces here. I find quite interesting researching you. You had some, you had some. You enrolled in a writing workshop at one point, didn't you, with the Jewish feminist writer E. M. Broner, who encouraged oh, yeah. you to get the manuscript done. Can you want to tell us about the impact that she made on your novel then? I'm so glad that you mentioned her. And Ian Broner, you know, was just an amazing, amazing writer. She wrote a book called Weave of Women, The Mothers. She rewrote the Passover Haggadah called The Telling. And I, when I, early on, I was really in one of her workshops. Um, I took when I moved back to the city, I mean, actually like a year after college, and I was just writing about my experience in, in the Soviet Union, trying to also get at this idea of inherited violence, because that is something that Anna is, she's trying to work through it, her own experiences and how to, how to deal with this very traumatic family history. And when I started writing it in, you know, E.M. E. Broner, her, her full name was Esther, she was so enthusiastic about my writing. She just said, you got to write this. And she said, you know, got me enrolled in the uh, Virginia Center for the Creative Arts. And I went That's, there. That was my time. next question, actually. So we'll come on to that. <laughs> well, it's kind of funny just to talk about that because I was very young. I was 23. I, I went to the Virginia Center for the Creative Arts, thanks to Esther Broner. And, you know, I, I sat in a room like you you sit in a room and like they serve you lunch. Like you just get a, a bag and you could eat your lunch. And it wasn't that easy being that young sitting with myself for so long. I have to like admit, you know, it, it, it and everyone was much older than me there. And they were so nice to me. Um, I met the poet W.D. Snodgrass, um, you know, confessional poet. He was the kindest. Everyone was so nice. Just the kindest man. And, um, but I did get a draft out. And I have to say, um, she encouraged me tremendously, but it took a long time for that. That So I got the draft out about, you know, my experiences in the Soviet Union and some, some of the connection to the grandmother, but it took more years, many more years. I had to put it aside for a long time, write these other things and come back to it to create this kind of three-generational book, multi-generational. But she yeah. was Wow, no. Yeah, so tell us about, obviously, your experiences at, at the Virginia Centre then for the Creative Arts, because I've heard of it. And um, was this where you got hold of chance to hold one of Virginia Woolf's manuscripts? Oh, I was talking about that. Um, that's another story. I'm going to just, yeah, the Virginia Centre for the Creative Arts was hmm. uh, just a great experience. But I would say it was a little difficult if I'm going to say something just slightly humorous just to be that young and to be in a room for six hours with yourself uh, was, was its own challenge, but I did get my draft done and it was a wonderful place. But I, um, I had the most amazing experience actually when I was in graduate school, as I said, um, working on Virginia Woolf and Toni Morrison. Um, at that time, that's a while back, um, well, Virginia Woolf's papers are at many of them. Many of them are, of course, are in England. Um, but um, some of them are in the New York Public Library in the Berg Collection. And I had the opportunity to go into the Berg Collection and hold an early draft of To the Lighthouse written in Wolf's handwriting. And I, I can't even tell you what it was like to hold that thing. I, I mean, I was practically shaking. 
maybe I was shaking. Um, <laughs> and it was definitely one of the most memorable experiences of my life. And I know that that opportunity does not exist anymore, that those, that those manuscripts are now behind glass and, you know, maybe they're, they're on micro, you know, they're, they're, you could see them on the computer, but to actually hold a draft. And I have to say, it was also so educational for me because it was an early draft to the lighthouse. And I really got to see like how much of it changed from, you know, what we all read. And, you know, obviously Wolf was just, you know, such a genius and it's, that book is so unbelievable. And it was really wonderful for me to see a little bit of Wolf's process, but to hold something from Wolf was just one of the highlights of my life. Oh, it has to be. I mean, you deal with someone like a major influence in your life, like you said before. It, you just you can't put you can't put it into words. It's just like speechless. I get you completely with that. So, right, looking at the time here now, say, um, want to want to give you a chance to actually get to read read a bit of your book for us now. A couple of quick things to conclude before we get to that is, what plans do you have coming up next, Lisa? And do you have any sort of future projects you can drop us hints about? Well, I have. Um an idea for a novel that I'm kind of playing around with. Um, so it takes place in New York city. Um, I think it still have to work on it more. So more, you know, plans for a novel, another novel and uh, just, just, just to keep the writing going. Yeah. Just keep at it. And they said, don't you? So it's the best way. So let, let it, let it tell itself at his own pace is my philosophy. So when yes. you get there, you get there. It's all brilliant. Okay. Now, last question then is, um, if people want to find more about you, where are the best going? Yes. Um, really easy. My The website is www.forgetrussia.com. So super easy to find. You can get Forget Russia um, on Amazon UK and uh, Barnes & Noble, um, Bookshop, so it, it's it's really ready readily available all over the place. Um, you can even email me if you want. I have a really easy email, forgetrussia at gmail.com. So, um, you know, really welcome. I can zoom into book book clubs, which I've been doing, and, you know, all, give talks and talk oh, about the behind the book. I've been giving a lot of talks about sort of just all the history behind this book. Brilliant. That's one good thing that's come off lockdown, really, and all that throughout the world, isn't it? It's made, because people use Zoom and all these other various packages, it makes it more accessible in some way, doesn't it? You, you can go all over the world much easier now. Yes, yes. It's, it's had, at least there's a silver lining there. It's yeah, one good, that's one good thing, definitely. So, right, Lisa, what we'll do, we'll wrap up here then, and we'll let you get composed and read out an extract for us in a minute or two. But it's been a fabulous. I've really enjoyed this today. Thank you, but it's been a fascinating chat. Oh, I chance. really loved it. And um, I just wanted to read just a very short part of when Sarah returns in 1931 to Leningrad. And actually, I just want to say, you know, this was a really big thing because under the czar, Jews were not allowed to live in the cities. So just the fact that she could come back to Leningrad, but she didn't want to go. And, but here she is um, on the boat and it's coming into Leningrad and it's 1931. The ship approached the city on an autumn night in late September. The lights from the boat shimmered on the water. Leningrad, so beautiful in the distance. Sarah had never seen anything like it before. 
There were large cobblestone squares and faded yellow buildings, symmetrical in form and appearance. On the ship, she had overheard that the Tsar's palaces had become museums. Others said she would find statues everywhere of Lenin, Stalin, Pushkin, Zerzhinsky. She started to weep, not knowing why or where her tears came from, only that she had returned to her homeland and was not prepared for the feelings welling up within her. Once the boat entered the harbor, Sarah thought she heard her mother calling to her in the rain that fell softly, creating a mist over the city. On the ship, no one spoke. They just peered at the city in front of them. The pier widened into places where few people walked. From across the dock, Sarah saw a poster of Stalin in a long black coat and white button-down shirt and boots marching alongside a line of Soviet soldiers. And then the words, the realization of her plan. Her girls clutched her hands, their small fingers entwined in hers. Are we almost there, they whined. Yes, can't you see the city in front of us? No, there are too many people, Susan said. And the smell is terrible. Sarah shot a look at Susan, the firstborn, named for her mother, but she could never stay angry at her for very long. I'll just end there. I'm mute to myself then. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant way of doing that, Lisa. The tease is always said before, isn't it? So if people are wondering, oh, that's, that's you told me before, that's about three quarters of a page, isn't it? So, so people want to get a hold of the rest of the book. It's worth it. It's a fascinating book. So you should, I meant to ask you before, Lisa, um, are the rest of your books still available? Your free poetry ones or your two yes, non-fiction yes, ones? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. They're, they're quite easy to find as well. So that's fine. I'll put all the details up on the write-up of this podcast because you've been under a few various reasons and we're not going to go into it here, but they're under several other names. So but that way then people can find them quite easy. But anyway, it's been brilliant today, Lisa. I've really enjoyed this. It's great when they get a chance to chat to people like it that know what they're talking about and the, the non-fiction side of things, as well as your fascinating novel itself. So thank you today, Lisa. Thank you very much. Hang around off after, my, after the chat. I need a quick word of you. But this is Andy N. Thank you, everybody, for listening. As Don Carlos at Impact Wrestling says, stay safe and stay over. See you all soon. Spoken, mate.